Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Sunday, would you now welcome Wendy, our, our pastor, <laughs> our creative, creative pastor, and our, what's your title? I don't know. And counseling director, <laughs> and she's my better half as yeah. she brings the message. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is so good to see you guys. Well, how many of you have know about the Flat Earth Society, you know? Oh, good, good, good. I, I didn't realize about that it was still going on, um, but this is their mission statement. And it says, standing with reason, we offer a home to those wayward thinkers that march bravely on with reason and truth in recognizing the true shape of the earth flat. So here is your word for the day, pertinacious, okay? Um, meaning holding tenaciously, obstinately, stubbornly to a belief. And if used in a sentence, it would be those in the flat earth society are pertinacious. Um, they believe that the Earth is, um, it is a flat disk with a magnetic north in its center. And through some m mathematical gymnastics and elaborate explanation of physics, they still adhere to the flat Earth today. So even with Apollo 11's, you know, the selfie pictures with the moon and the Earth is in the background and it looks like a round globe, they would say the flat Earth proponents, of which there are more than 3,000 followers, say that those images can fool an untrained eye, but not them, because the Earth is still flat. And that is pertinacious, okay? And it's also really nerdy. And so, um, but I hope that it highlights just how difficult it can be to change, especially the way that we think. And much of life is about learning how to change, because without it, you know, we are not going to become who we are meant to be. So we have been in this Lenten series, and we're pulling on this phrase, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And it's where Jesus shares some of his greatest and deepest truth through the simple experience of sitting down and sharing a meal and yet some of um you know these meals are just not these cozy dinner conversations and at many of them it's almost like jesus is picking a fight so today's meal jesus is at a banquet it's given by matthew who was also known as levi and it's where jesus talks about an essential change that all of us need to make now this account is found in all three of the gospels three of the gospels and there's a reason that all three versions they share the story of some friends who are dropping their friend who's paralyzed through the roof of a house so that Jesus can pay some attention to their guy. And what we see is not only does Jesus heal the man, but he declares that this man's sins are forgiven. And now that brings a ton of buzz about Jesus, you know, this upstart rabbi from the north who thinks that he can forgive sins. And so to the Pharisees, that's blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus knows that they're thinking this, and he says, well, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, and he took, up, and he took what he had been lying on, and he went home praising God. Now after this, Jesus went down, and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, or Matthew, Sitting at his tax booth, follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. So Matthew was this tax collector who made a living by charging a fee on top of the tax rate that came from the Romans. And so there were no rules, so tax collectors could charge anything that they wanted, and if you argued about your tax, the tax collector would just increase it. They had the authority to take your land, and they could even put you in jail. 
So this was a lucrative business. It was marked by greed and corruption. And so tax collectors were hated. And Matthew was not only a tax collector, but he was a Jew working for the Romans. So Matthew had turned on his back, his back on his family and his countrymen, and he sold out for money. Now that would have been almost as bad as if a Jew was working as an informant for the Nazis during the Holocaust. So Matthew would have been hated by everyone, probably his own family, um, rich, but he was incredibly hated. And then G Jesus shows up and says, leave this, Matthew. Come on, follow me, be my disciple. Can you imagine how Jesus' other Jewish disciples, like Peter, James, and John, would have felt about Jesus picking this tax collector to be a part of their group? But Matthew saw it as this opportunity of a lifetime, and he just doesn't want to miss it. So right away, he follows. He leaves everything. That is obedience. He gave up his life, and he went for this new life with, with Jesus. And that's the powerful connection that the three Gospels want to emphasize. You've got this paralytic man who gets up, and immediately he's healed and he's forgiven. And it's similar wording with Matthew, that he got up, and he left everything, and he followed Jesus. Both of these became new men, leading new lives. Which leads Jesus to talk about this new way of living at this party that Matthew gives because he's celebrating his newness. So it goes on to say, Then Levi held a banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And Jesus shows what the kingdom of God looks like with that, right? Everyone and anyone is invited. The text goes on, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the, of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the, his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, growing up in church, um, you know, we were taught, Jeremy touched on this um, last week, but we were taught, you know, like the Pharisees were, ba were bad guys. When I grew up, we even had a song that we sang about them. Um, this is how we rocked it in my church. This is my teen years, okay? I don't know if some of you remember the song. I'm not going to really sing it. I'm just going to say some of the phrases. But one of them was like, I don't want to be a Pharisee because they're not fair, you see. How about this one? I don't want to be a sad, you see, because they're so sad, you see. I'm, and then I don't want to be a hypocrite because they're just not hip to it. Um, I just want to be a sheep. Bah. You know. Can you imagine? I mean, that's, that's how we rocked contemporary worship back then, okay? But I, so anyway, I learned that the Pharisees were bad, but I did not connect to how I too could be like them. Now, these were educated scholars. They were teachers of the law, and they ended horribly. I mean, they were a significant part and took a significant role in killing Jesus. However, um, the Pharisees, they started out with good. With, with good. They had a heart for God um, and for sinners. Um, it is believed that Ezra, the book in the Bible, is named after Ezra. He was a Jewish leader and a priest, and he was a founder of the Pharisees. Because while the Jews were exiled in Babylon, the Jewish leaders realized how much they had forgotten God. So they had a high value of scripture and a passion for holiness. And so this group joined together because they wanted to protect the faith. However, over the years, things changed. And part of that was because their name Pharisee means separated ones, originally meaning to be separated for God and devoted to the law, which we need, right? But it led them to being separated from people who were sinners. So they had to be separated from people like tax collectors and prostitutes, criminals, alcoholics, and anyone who was sick. The Pharisees became these elitists. They thought of themselves then as more, hot, as more holy, more righteous than anyone else. And in order to stay that way, they had to avoid unclean outcasts. So when Jesus purposely chooses to eat with those who are unclean, 
the Pharisees believed like it was wrong and it was dangerous for the faith. Their message was if you were unclean, you were not welcome to the table. You were not welcomed or even wanted in God's presence. You needed to get cleaned up. Jesus' inclusion of everyone being welcomed to the table, drawing them into the presence of God, led to such tension between him and the Pharisees, and it's why Jesus goes on to explain in this text. He says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And isn't that a brilliant response? He, Jesus uses this well-known proverb of their day and invites them to listen to that wisdom, because he's saying, the healthy don't need a doctor, right? The sick do. A doctor has to be with sick people. This is why I have to be with sinners. My job is to bring healing. And that is the whole point of the gospel. But the Pharisees just couldn't get that. Um, they viewed salvation as separating. So Jesus goes on and he shares a two word pictures to help the, see the stark difference between the way of Jesus and the way of religion. And to help them to see that pharisaical thinking that they were pertinaciously stuck in. Do I get two points for putting it into another sentence? I don't know. But anyway, it goes on to say, Jesus says, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch on, patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have, to, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and the, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will, skins will be ruined. The new wine must be poured into new wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. So that first picture is, um, you know, for old, well-worn jeans and they need a patch. We don't cut a new pair of jeans to, to patch it up because the new patch wouldn't have shrunk like the old had done, and it would cause the old to tear. And that second picture about Jesus using old and new wine and wineskins you know, I'm not an expert in wine, but I do know that the new wine expands because there's a gas in it. And because um, an old wine skin is already stretched, putting something, a new wine into it, it's going to make it burst. So in order to avoid an explosion, we need new wine. New wine has to have new wine skin. So both of these images are referring to the old covenant, which was based on a religious system, you know, where animals were sacrificed to cover one's sin. And the common religious understanding was that you had to follow all the rules in order to be in a right relationship with God. And then Jesus is just boldly saying, you just can't patch something new onto something old. You can't patch a new idea to your old relig religious flat earth kind of thinking. You can't keep the old wineskin because God is doing something new and it's going to require you throwing out the old in order to have the new. God is ushering in a new covenant. Now, it's strange to think that these Pharisees who had studied the, the Bible so much, they were opposed to Jesus' new covenant. Because um, throughout the scripture, it talks about the Messiah, the Savior. He would bring a new covenant. Like Jeremiah prophesied, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. But change is hard, right? You know, we see on the last night before his crucifixion, we see Jesus talking with his disciples at the Last Supper. And he shares how his blood is going to take away sins. And he says it this way, this is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. A covenant where Jesus himself would be the sacrificial lamb to cover the sins of the world, welcoming anyone who believes. So the Pharisees, they just needed this new radical perspective to see the superiority of this new wine. 
which is why Jesus said at Matthew's party, remember, and no one drinking the old one wine wants to drink the new, for they say the old is better. What Jesus is saying, he says, I get it. I know, Pharisees, um, that it is hard to have something new. It's easier to fold, fall back into something old and familiar and comfortable, and I think we would probably experience that too in our own faith, rather than being led by the Spirit of God into this new way of being in a relationship with God. So Jesus is asking the Pharisees to do the same as the tax collector Matthew, who left it all behind, left those old ways and into a new life. And rather than trying to earn your acceptance by doing all kinds of religious acts, yet the Pharisees had such a hard time walking away from those old ways of thinking and doing. And, you know, we do too. And it's not only that the Pharisees fall into that them you know we fall into this transactional relationship with god where we feel like we have to do certain things right in order to keep god happy but god's love is so constant and it's not based on our ability to perform we do not have to work to gain his approval we obey him because we're so incredibly grateful and so just to give a clearer picture of some of the pharisees thinking and the need for our new way of thinking um nicodemus is a great example now, he wasn't just a member of the Pharisees, he was of the elite, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's not just a pastor, he's like the celebrity pastor, which I think are the ones that wear the ripped jeans and look really cool. But, so that would have been Nicodemus, maybe in his time. But, um, so, but Nicodemus was really curious about Jesus. He sees something in Jesus that he wants to have more of in his life, but, um, but he doesn't want anybody else to know. So what does he do? He comes at night. And sneaks in to see and listen to G ask Jesus some questions. And then Jesus goes just right to the core with Nicodemus. And he says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. And this passage is often used to identify to help unsaved people that they need to be born again. You know, we hear that a lot. Um, and that's true. But in this context, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, someone who had been fervently seeking and following God. And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. So some theologians say that the non-Jewish converts in ancient Judaism, they were called children. Um, that means when Jesus was asking Nicodemus to become like a newborn infant, he was saying, you have to become like the lowest um, person that you oversee in the temple. And that would challenge Nicodemus' identity. You know, he wore these robes of prestige and status. People knew who he was wherever he went. And Jesus is saying, in order for you to have this relationship with God that you want, you're going to have to take off your robes and you're going to have to become like a child again. And these robes, because these robes are keeping you from this relationship that you're wanting with me. And Nicodemus just struggles, right? He is unsure if he wants to give up everything like Matthew did. And we don't see, in the Bible, we don't see Nicodemus engaged like Matthew did and leave everything. Nicodemus watches Jesus more from a distance. And yet, you cannot know Jesus and experience his kingdom from a safe distance. You cannot be a spectator Engaging with God cannot happen without risk. It requires us leaving our identity, becoming like a child again. It requires us not using an old wineskin. Um, we have to be radically reoriented to the new thing that God is doing. And Because there, there's two fundamental ways of being human, right? There's we can trust ourselves and our own abilities, or we can trust God. And that's what Nicodemus and the Pharisees were struggling with. 
Jesus was trying to help them see you just can't patch things up and use an old wineskin. We can't just fine-tune our, our bad behaviors, polish off some rough edges, and say we're all good. That is what religion is. You and I need to change from the core of our very being, where we trust not on our own efforts, our own behaviors. We trust solely on God's love. This new wine, this new way of living. And so this new covenant that Jesus offers us, it's just more than a one-time thing, right? It's continually choosing to engage and live in the new wine. And Jesus alluded to this with Nicodemus because he said you need to be born of what? Water and spirit. This new wine includes a new relationship with the Holy Spirit, different than they had in the old covenant. It connects with us why Jesus told his disciples that it was better for him to leave, right? So that the Holy Spirit would come to each and every one of those who choose God. And so toward the end of last year, you know, we really sensed that God was inviting us into something. We did a whole series on an invitation, but we really weren't sure what that was. And now we are seeing that God is doing something new at Quest, and I so appreciate it. Like, and I am not wanting to miss out on what God is giving us. I mean, he is so good and he is so gracious, but I know that if I'm not open to change, I'm going to miss out on something that he has. And so it leads us to this question. This is our final question. Like, how do we continue to engage in the new wine that Jesus offers? Now, I, I, um, I remembered a podcast um, from We Are Vineyard. It's a new podcast. It's a really good one if you want to listen in um, because we're a vineyard church. It's, just, it's been a great, great. And, and a few months back, they interviewed um, Andy Crouch. He is a prominent evangelical thinker and a writer. And he wrote a book called Strong and Weak. And I think that it helps us see how we can get more engaged in the new wine that God is bringing to us. Um, Crouch talks about how we all want lives that flourish, um, lives that are abundant and generous and full. We don't want to just survive. We don't want to just exist in this life. We want to live what we're meant to be, right? So we're living a life that Jesus offers when he says that, oh, I love that verse, when it says, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. I think that um, we all want to walk in that way, right? But I don't think we are. I think sometimes we're often unsure on how to get there. So Crouch made this chart. And um, someone said that, like, graphs for them are like their love language. And I so get it. I'm so nerdy. I could spend, an hour, I could spend hours just looking at graphs. And I, I don't know what that is. But anyway, because I, I, love, I love these images because they simplify heady concepts. So what he is doing is he's taking this paradox which are two ideas that we think that are opposed to each other, and then he shows how they complement each other. So the paradoxes of the weak and the strong, and that leads to a flourishing life. They form two axes on authority and vulnerability, that when we move into both weakness and in strength, we are moving more toward a flourishing life. And you can see that in quadrant one. So this vertical axis of authority, that's defined as this capacity for meaningful action. We are all created um, in the image of God. We have been given the gift of authority. And from birth, we start to learn that what we do affects other people. Like if we cry, um, you know, we learn that we were going to get help. We, can, we learn how to use and misuse authority. We learn how to maybe even avoid authority. So then the horizontal axis is vulnerability. And that, you know, we often think that that means that we're supposed to be emotionally vulnerable. Now, that's valuable and it's part of being vulnerable, but this concept of vulnerability is much more broad. It's about risk. It's about choosing to risk losing something that you value. Because you're vulnerable um, by opening yourself up to the chance that something could be taken from you. 
something could go wrong. And it's not just maybe the loss of possessions, but it's the loss of maybe relationships or a sense of our own self. Um, Brene Brown, she has researched courage and vulnerability for over 20 years, and she asked this question, can you name one act of courage that you've been involved in or witnessed that did not involve uncertainty, risk, or emotional exposure? I mean, the answer would be no, wouldn't it? Yeah, because in order to be brave, you also have to be very vulnerable because you're not sure what is going to happen, um, but you do it anyway. That's bravery. And that could be like starting a business, um, sitting with someone who is in the last stages of cancer. It could be investing in a relationship that may not work out. It could be the first to say, I love you. It could be the first to say, I'm sorry. Walking in this balance of authority and vulnerability, I mean, Jesus did it so perfectly. And especially today with Palm Sunday being the first day of our Holy Week, we remember that Jesus is is walking into the streets with this triumphal entry of Jerusalem and the crowds are cheering and they're rejoicing and they're declaring, Hosanna, you know, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet despite all that affirmation and celebration of him, Jesus is grieving because he knows what is laid before him. He knows how quickly these people are going to be just changing. They're going to change that rejoicing into rejection. Now Jesus, he had all authority. And yet he chose to become so vulnerable to come as earth as a human and then to give up all of his rights in his life in order to meet us where we're at. I mean, he had every right as the creator of the universe to have stayed in that category of just authority, but he chose vulnerability too. And he risked so much because he loves us so much. And that's where we're going. Like when authority and vulnerability are absent, we're going to find some distortions. And Crouch identifies three, suffering, withdrawing, and exploiting. That first, the quadrant two is suffering. Um, and this is where you are vulnerable. You have great exposure to risk, but you have no authority. You don't have the ability to change your circumstances. I mean, that would be like if, if a death happened or you lost a job. Something happened to you and you had no control over it and you couldn't have stopped it from happening. That can be in the category of suffering. Now, withdrawing, that's quadrant three. You have, real, you have neither vulnerability or authority. You take no meaningful risks, and since nothing is attempted, you have little vulnerability and you stay very safe. You stay in this little bubble, withdrawn from the world, and you feel protected. Um, you choose comfort over courage. Now, Crouch described it like being on a cruise, and I've been on one cruise, and I totally had so much fun. I loved it. But it's where you continually have other people taking care of you, all of your needs. It's amazing. Like, and so anyway, you can stay safe in this little corner with no worries, and um, yet you are doing, you're not doing anything, um, which can be great for a few days. Withdrawing as a lifestyle, though, is less than flourishing. This way of living is, is more about apathy and fear because life begins with risk. That's where the meaning is found. And the last quadrant is exploiting. So Crouch says he would have renamed this control because this is where you want to have authority, but you don't want to be vulnerable. So we act um, without having to worry about um, what's going to happen. We want to control all of the pieces. And this is the most dangerous quadrant. And the Bible talks about falling into this when the serpent approached the woman and he said to her, if you eat this, you're going to be like God. That's high authority. And then the woman says, well, we're dependent on God, and if we eat this, we'll die. 
And the serpent responds, you're not that vulnerable. You can have authority without being vulnerable, without needing God. And it's this lie that led to all of humankind having to navigate evil. Because it, it's sneaky. I mean, none of us likes to, to lose things, right? We don't want to risk. No one wants to be that vulnerable. And this is where I see where the Pharisees got stuck. They had a difficult time changing their religious way of, of thinking. They said, we're going to take action. We're going to control all the behaviors, control who's around us, what's around us, who. And that's just where we do. And when we minimize being vulnerable, it can lead to exploiting other people and injustice. Like Jesus told the Pharisees, you've got to be born again. You've got to risk and be vulnerable. But they wanted to stay in control of that relationship. They wanted to follow every law. And so then by that, then they rejected everybody else who didn't meet these certain expectations. And that rejection exploited other people, right? They were outcasts. But we have in contrast, Matthew, he would have been in the category of embracing both vulnerability and authority. He gave up. He took action. He gave up everything to follow Jesus. And that was risky and vulnerable, but incredibly meaningful. So um, as I was looking at this chart, I was trying to identify places where you would put those unhelpful habits that we have, that we, things that we turn to to fill our hearts and minds with something that only God can really give us. Um, so I wanted to think, like, do these unhealthy coping strategies land in more of a safety and the withdrawing quadrant or where else? Um, you know, things that we do, like maybe gaming too much, binge-watching, overeating, I don't know, anything could be placed. You could place those there, but I thought it was interesting that Crouch made that he said placing some of those coping strategies under that exploiting that's where he put it is under the exploiting control quadrant because he said he gave the example he said let's just say that you landed at college and you are really anxious about going to a party and then you discover that you could have something um you could have something that could increase your sense of authority and diminish your vulnerability and if you held it and you sipped it um, your discomfort would dis decrease and your excitement would increase. So you take action and you take a drink thinking that it's going to help. However, that is not a coping strategy that's going to work because eventually that thing that once gave you a sense of authority without vulnerability will betray you. You're going to need more of it and more of it to get the same effect. And if done consistently, you end up having absolutely no power you end in that quadrant of suffering. You have no authority, no control, and you are totally vulnerable um, to that. So some research shows that because vulnerability often feels like weakness, it can often be a trigger for feeling shame. So the, they say the response of most men when they feel like that shame and that vulnerable piece is they'll either go high on that, um, take authority without vulnerability, or they shut down, they withdraw. Now, I, I can see how that could be for men. I know that I do the same thing. Um, I know that I choose control and withdrawing as a way to self-protect, right? I don't want to be that way. So I think it could be really helpful to take the graph and sort of assess your choices. Like, am I choosing now um, both authority or vulnerability? Am I choosing to withdraw or, and, and be more controlling? Um, so when preparing this message, I also, um, one of the places I felt like it landed on was how, I know the places where I get more controlling and I, where I have a tendency to withdraw has to do with the cost of doing relationships. And I started to think of several people who have felt led by God to risk. Um, 
they opened themselves up. They invited some people into their lives, as, even as family. And they were hurt, and they were betrayed and used and violated. And now they're struggling with questions like, I thought God led me to this. And they are disappointed. They're even angry, even toward God. And I believe that God wants to do something for you in this. Um, recently, I was involved in a conversation about someone who, um, they were supporting a parent. This wasn't the counseling, but this was just somebody I was talking with. And this parent had risked everything for a child, only to have this child greatly harm them and those that they loved. And there was, in the conversation, there was this older, wiser man, and he simply said, when you have a desire to love others, how do you not get wounded? And when he said that, he said it so casually, but it just, I was so touched with this deep sense of grief and compassion that God has for those who have risked loving other people in a broken world because people hurt, right? They hurt people. And at the same time, I just sensed this gratefulness that God had for anyone who risked and loved. That, um, that it was such a God moment. It has resonated in myself for myself, but it's lingered in my prayers for you. Because uh, maybe this is part of the suffering that Paul talks about when he says that we're joining in the suffering of Christ. So for any one of you who has ever risked and been harmed, may you have a deeper awareness of how God has grieved, um, grieved for you for the suffering that you've gone through. And I, and I pray that you may also feel his gratefulness because he knows that you could have chosen safety and to withdraw. It can be so much easier to do that and, and then in relationships. So I just, as we end today, I want there, for some of you, let his spirit really touch you in that place. But in the, let's, as a full closure, let's, and as we close, um, let's just ask ourselves, what quadrant do you land in? Are you, are you, am I consistently choosing taking action and being vulnerable as I grow in God, engaging more fully in this new wine that Jesus provided for me? Or am I persistently vulnerable? Am I, without being able to act, and I take authority, I'm in that suffering quadrant. Is my temptation maybe to retreat and take no action and avoid being vulnerable? Where in my life am I playing it safe and withdrawing in that next quadrant? And then the final one is my tendency to want to power up, to take action, take control, because I don't want to risk losing something that I value. A meaningful life is not a life void of difficulty, right? I think Paul said it so well when in his letter to Timothy, and he, he, he was encouraging Timothy and all the followers to live this way, in a way that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So let's just take a moment and just ask the Holy Spirit, what is he speaking to each one of us? Well, Lord, we just want to thank you so much that you are the perfection of vulnerability and strength. We thank you so much that you chose to come and to take of our sin and on the cross. We thank you that you had the authority to go into death and that you took the keys of death and you hold it all. We just thank you for the power of what you walk in and the softness of your word. Lord, I just pray that you would touch each one of us with the strength to live in a way that is so meaningful, that we
We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.